welcome to the 30th episode of the Animal Riot Podcast, brought to you by Animal Riot Press, a literary press for books that matter. I'm your host, not Brian Birnbaum. This is your producers, Katie Rainey here, filling in for Brian. Unfortunately, Brian is dealing with a family emergency that I'm sure he'll talk about on air at some point. But until he gets back, I'll be your faithful guide. Currently, we are sitting on the back deck of my Airbnb hostel that I didn't give anybody warning that we were here in glorious, sunny Asheville, North Carolina. We are right in the middle of our literary tour with our friends from Southern Fried Karma Press. And I've got three representatives of Southern Fried Karma here with me today. We'll talk a little bit more about the tour in a second, but I want to introduce them all. We've got, first of all, the man, the myth, and the legend, Steve McCondishy, former former guest of the podcast. Episode 24. Episode 24. <laughs> y'all means all. all. <laughs> yep. Steve is here and he's back today with two of his authors, which I'm going to give them a more formal introduction. Steve, would yep. you like anything else added to your introduction? To mine? No, but we'll dub it in later. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll just play like a, a ditty over when you say hello and yeah. introduce your former episode. So with me here, with uh, Steve and I here, are Matthew Duffus. Matthew Duffus, your book just came out, Swapping yes. Purples for Yellows, That's on right, August on 6th. Yeah, mm-hmm. Tuesday. So this will air next Thursday. I don't know. I don't know time right now. Matthew Duffus's fiction has appeared in a variety of places, including Beloit. 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 I'll get these bios right eventually. Beloit Fiction Journal, Cimarron yes. Review, got one, and New Ohio Review. He is also the author of the forthcoming short story collection, Dunbar's Folly and Other Stories. He lives in North Carolina, where he teaches and directs the Writing Center at Gardner-Webb University. And he's going to be sharing a little bit from his debut novel out from, or no, not debut novel. Yes. It is debut novel. It is novel. debut. Okay. Yeah. Debut novel. Yeah, it is his debut. Okay. And Gardner-Webb is, is in Boiling Springs, North Carolina, which well, everybody knows. That's right. We are all things North Carolina this week. Yes. Yeah. Also with us is George Hovis. Hi, Katie. Uh, the author of The Skin Artist. George Hovis is a native of Gaston County, North Carolina. So many things North Carolina. His stories and essays have appeared in the Carolina Quarterly, Southern Cultures, Mississippi Quarterly, North Carolina Literary Review, and numerous other journals and anthologies. In addition to his debut novel, The Skin Artist, out from SFK Press last March, May. May. He is also the author of the monograph, Bale of Humility, Plain Folk and Contemporary North Carolina Fiction. He is a Pushcart Prize nominee and former president of the Thomas Wolfe Society. He earned a PhD from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and has attended the Sewanee. Sewanee. Sewanee yes, Writers mm-hmm. Conference. I've been fucking that up all week. <laughs> no, you didn't, you you didn't it. fuck it up that time. Right? <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's, it's Swanee. Swanee. Yeah, Swanee. Okay. okay. It's Swanee. I defer to It's Swanee. Okay. okay. Drop that it's, first E. Yeah, it's, okay. the, it's the University of the South. Yes. Swanee. Okay. It's an Episcopalian school. They mm-hmm. taught me since I was in pre-K. <laughs> George currently lives with his wife and their two children in upstate New York, where he is a professor of English at SUNY. Oneonta. I can't say that word. I'm giving up. And it's recipient not a real word. of the SUNY Chancellor's Award for Excellent in Teaching. Welcome, fellas. Thank you. Thank you. How are you damn, guys doing? Gla- damn, damn glad to be here. Yeah. Damn glad. So, yeah, we're right in the middle of this literary tour that is the brainchild of Steve and I's um, that we've been working on for a few months. We've done three events so far. Oh, and I, I should say that this episode's brand of fuckery comes from the fact that we're recording outside and you will hear many. The many Asheville elements come and go. There's there's a street on the other side of the house. We might have some other guests who are staying in the hospital pop 
pop on by who don't know. Who I don't know. Maybe we'll have them on the podcast. See what happens. <laughs> yeah, we're in West Asheville. That's yeah. right. Which is an important distinction. That's right. Oh, West Asheville. What we'll West Asheville. Yeah. Power to the people. Fuck yeah. the man. Fuck the man. Why do you <laughs> say that, Steve? Because we're West Asheville. I think you have to. <laughs> no. So this is what I have learned about. So there's a distinction between Asheville proper, mm-hmm. where you'll find the Thomas Wolf crowd, mm-hmm. and West Asheville, which will you may find the electric Kool-Aid acid test crowd. The Tom there you crowd. go. Oh, there you go. Good. Yeah. yeah. So okay. there's a, it's it's a little bit it's a little. They, Asheville got gentrified, and their folks came over to live in West Asheville, and they don't give hmm. a shit for nothing. Yeah, we're we're, we're going to be at Firestorm Books tonight. You want to say anything about Firestorm? F- power the people. <laughs> power fuck the, the man. people. <laughs> fuck the man. That's what they are. They are all excited. I'm excited to be there. And apparently, yeah. the event is an hour sooner than I thought because time doesn't mean anything to me this week i'm a little bit i know what you're talking about like we feel like musicians right now yeah. on tour <laughs> i think I, I think i would i uh, upgraded myself from the backup bass player to maybe a rhythm guitar player okay <laughs> okay. okay but i'm yeah. definitely keeping the beat yeah i'm not there a, you go no i don't get any solos yeah well, we have done three events so far, and we were at Skeppernog Books in Greensboro. Shout out to them. Skeppernog. Yeah, yeah, Shannon and the crowd there. Yeah. yeah, Shannon and Brian, the whole crowd there. And we were at Tuesday Night Bookmarks in Winston-Salem with Jamie and Lisa and Jennifer and all those good folks. And yeah. Tons of people from the North Carolina Writers Networks and uh, Winston-Salem Writers Networks and schools and everything came out. And then last night we were at a cute little bookshop in High Point, Sunrise Books. Had some great, great conversations mm-hmm. with folks there. I don't know. It y'all was the most. Out. It was the most comfortable. Mm-hmm. Whatever. And you guys are English. I you want were, one you, of those. You guys are worm chairs. Yeah, you're yeah. worm people. <laughs> yeah, this, those chairs were one notch more comfortable than comfortable. And I'm not sure were, what the word yeah. is. I had a little kitty in my lap the whole time. That's yeah, funny. it was. Uh, it was a great. And plus, I got to do my thing with the. With the almonds, yes, well, the almonds. You I explain? finally understand Fine. publishing, and I don't. Well, yeah, you, you got to explain it a little bit on air since I'm, you mentioned I'm, it. But I'm saving the moon pie. So I do a thing. It's I learned it from sales. Sales, you got to have a little bit of showmanship, and that's how I explain publishing to curious authors about you know how it works. And I normally use moon pies mm-hmm. to explain how publishing has changed over the 20 years from when they used to make 10 different bets of a hundred thousand dollars, and now they give some guy from Sarah Lawrence two million dollars. Mm-hmm. And everybody else gets butkus. <laughs> and yep. uh, that's, that's a, but I, I'm definitely, for Davidson, mm-hmm. North Carolina, yeah. for Main Street Books. Moon pies. I got to have moon pies. Yeah, <laughs> there you I go. I got to have moon pies. Got to up the okay. game a little. I, have I mean, I, yeah, moon pies. Extra sugar, please. Well, so this tour, Steve, I do want to talk about like what we're doing. Because the next couple episodes after this, I'm going to be sharing some recordings. You know, I've been doing interviews with all the bookstore owners and different people there. So anyway, yeah. So the next couple episodes I'm going to be releasing will be interviews with different folks around the literary community in North Carolina, different bookstore owners and folks in the crowd. We'll get some stuff from Firestorm tonight. Can't wait to hear what they have to say on the podcast. Proud of the people, awesome. fuck the man. I got extra batteries just for that conversation for my handheld one. But so what? Why, why did we start to do this, Steve? Why? Because we had a conversation at AWP about literary. You had been to a, the workshop on literary citizenship mm-hmm. and what that means. Mm-hmm. And we decided that we should band together and start cultivating a, a community because that as as independent fiercely mm-hmm. independent publisher yes but well yeah we're adopting that too now oh and i and i 
got it from Ovid Bookstore. And they're a fiercely independent bookstore. Yeah. Janet at, at Ovid. Shout out to Janet at Ovid. Two locations on Lumpkin and Preston and downtown Athens. So we decided let's let's kind of barnstorm mm-hmm. through North Carolina. We as a press have a lot of books centered mm-hmm. in, with authors centered around North Carolina. Yeah, board, both George and Matthew. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, but it's books. also the it's the idea of tomato plants. What's that? <laughs> so this is you just keep throwing a new metaphor at me yeah. tonight. I can't keep up. So this comes from my father about about selling uh-huh. about it, and it's sales and developing relationships is kind of like a tomato plant. Okay. It, it you can't just plant the seed in the ground, come back three months later and right. have it a bush. Mm. You've you've got to it's got to be cultivated. It's got to be worked. Right. You, and there's a whole different steps along the way. Mm. And my father would go for about 30 more minutes of that explanation. <laughs> but and my father was one of the best salespeople I've ever met. But but I think that what what our missions are trying to do mm-hmm. and and be divergent voices away from the homogenization of the folks in New York City demands that we have relationships with mm-hmm. commu- independent writing communities and that those take effort. On our part, yeah, it's kind of like your spiritual walk. It, you don't just, you don't just sprinkle some water. You don't, yeah, say, hail Buddha or whatever it is. <laughs> I'm, I'm we also we yeah. also wanted to find new writers yes. and and feel that you know yes we can put out the call on social media all day long but we would prefer more personal relationships with people and we don't think that it's like they ha- you know yes they can come find us but also we think it's our responsibility to come find them too which is yeah. why we're down these communities. And just to highlight the work that indie presses and bookstores are doing. I mean, so many of these bookstores, I can't wait for our listeners to hear these conversations about what, they're not just bookstores, they're places of community. They, they do a lot of advocacy work. It's really, really incredible, like what these bookstores have been doing and why we were so purposeful in going to small local bookstores with missions and really just connecting with writers. We met so many great people so far. It's been it's been really I'm, lovely. I'm anxious to hear Whitney's story, how she's going to do the book on the history of castration. Shout out to mm. Whitney. Yeah. We won't give out her last name. Actually, I don't think I, I don't know if she gave me. I'm pretty. Her. I'm going with Houston. <laughs> she, she we, oh okay we'll call her Whitney Houston Whitney she came to two of our events with yeah. her partner Trevor and mm-hmm. Whitney and Trevor I met them great people yeah, yeah they mm-hmm. came to two events and just were chatting us up and then Whitney is a nursing student who said she's got a, a nonfiction book in her she's trying to write about castration and we just we went gaga for that idea <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, yeah I, I didn't want to I didn't want to cut her off but I think it's a great idea yeah that's a great yeah. idea mm-hmm that's a new imprint right there. Right. Fiction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For like clinical work for. Yeah. <laughs> well, so we got two North Carolina writers here. George, do you still consider yourself a North oh, Carolina writer? Absolutely. 100% North Carolina writer. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I've so, lived outside of North Carolina for almost 20 years, but I still call North Carolina home. Mm-hmm. And I guess I haven't even said, like, I lived in Winston-Salem, North Carolina for a long time. And so that's kind of my connection. And when you suggested doing it in North Carolina, I was like, oh, yeah, I know tons of people down there. I went to camp here. You went to camp? (laughs) You were probably a rowdy little camper. That's another story. That's a whole other podcast. (laughs) So what do you guys think of the literary community here? Can you tell us about it? What you, you know, what the feeling is, where you are? Well... You want to go first? No, go ahead. As you mentioned, I did a Ph.D. at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and I wrote a dissertation on contemporary North Carolina fiction. So that was my specialty area and trying to distinguish, you know, what, what made North Carolina fiction different from other Southern fiction. 
And my basic thesis was that North Carolina had a distinctive history in it. The yeoman farmer, that is the small farmer as opposed to the planter, was Mm -hmm. the central figure in that history. That due to geography, North Carolina didn't develop a plantation system to the extent that surrounding southern states did. Which is not to absolve North Carolina of its share of racial guilt and and the legacy of slavery, but the sort of psychology of North Carolinians and the writers was coming out of a different place, and so Mm -hmm. I was trying to chart that. Some of the writers I studied were Lee Smith, Fred Chappell, Clyde Edgerton, Randall Keenan, Doris Betts, Reynolds Price were sort of the big ones of a certain generation. And then, you know, in the last couple of decades, you have new voices. A couple of recent books that I'm very excited about are Stephanie Powell Watts, Deshaun Charles Winslow, and a whole lot of younger writers from North mm-hmm. Carolina like Matthew Duffus. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a state burgeoning with literary activity, and that's been going on for many decades. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. David Sedaris is from North Carolina, That's right. right. That's right. He's okay. A, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. How about you, Matthew? I went to the North Carolina Writers Network Conference last year, mm-hmm. and I was amazed by how many people were there. They it's must a strong have, network. It is a very strong network. They there were Shout out to Ed Southern. That's right, yeah, Ed Southern. Ed. Yeah, yeah. Yes. he was there at Bookmarks Tuesday That's right. night. Cool. I saw him. Yeah. He emailed us today. Yes, his Jamie. Ed, we're getting back to your email. If we haven't responded by next <laughs> Thursday when this drops, we're sorry. <laughs> and his wife, Jamie, runs the, runs the manager of the bookstore operations. Oh, okay. Of, uh, I didn't bookmarks. know that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there Very must cool. have been six to eight panels going on at the same time with 10 to 20 people at each one of them, if not more. And so I think there are a lot of people writing in North Carolina, whether they're getting published or whether they're just doing it as a hobby. Mm-hmm. I'm a small town guy. I live in Boiling Springs area. and Where Gardner uh, Webb is. Where Gardner Webb University is. And Do you tell some of your students to come on this tour? Yeah. Visit? Yeah. yeah I ha- I've tried to. Ah. A lot of my students, they go away for the summer. Yeah, I've, I've been trying to get anybody I can find to come, but the, the challenge with the small towns, and I think we saw that uh, a little bit in High Point last night, is just you know, getting the word out mm-hmm. sometimes. I well, know. and we also found out we were up against like the debut baseball game right, or something. Right, exactly. Big. The High Point yeah. Rockers. Yeah. High Point yeah. And, uh, baseball, yeah. Well, why don't we get who, we're going to thumb wrestle for who reads first, and then we'll, we'll talk a little more and then have somebody else read in, in like sure. 20, 30 minutes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Good. Who wants to read okay. first? Let's thumb re- wrestle. Who read first last night? <laughs> I read first last night. So that's so your turn. So George, I really want to thumb first. wrestle. <laughs> Shit, go for it, man. All right, George, you're, you're okay. first Okay, all right. So let me say a few words to provide some context. And this uh, is George Hovis with a skin artist, which I finished a couple weeks ago. SFK Press, mm-hmm. May 2019. Thank you. So the skin artist is set in Charlotte, North Carolina in the summer of 1998. And if you know anything about Charlotte, it's one of those southern boom towns that has been growing very quickly for a hundred years. In the 1980s and 90s, when I worked and played in Charlotte, uh, that boom raised to a whole other level. Charlotte finally attracted two major sports franchises. It had been living off of mid-Atlantic wrestling for the decades up to that, but 
When the wrestlers moved to Ted Turner's Atlanta, the Panthers and the Hornets came in to fill that vacuum. And the city went crazy for those sports teams. Charlotte announced itself as a global banking superpower, and in 92, it erected the Nation's Bank Tower as visible evidence of its prominence. And the Nation's Bank Tower has been renamed, but it's at 60 stories, still the tallest building in the Carolinas. And McMansions were springing up everywhere. And in one of those McMansions, you'll find my protagonist. His name is Bill Becker. He's a rural transplant to the city. As the novel begins, has for some time been estranged from his family out in the country. He's struggling with alcoholism and his marriage is on the rocks as a result. Pretty soon thereafter, he loses his corporate job. And one night he discovers that his wife is involved with the attorney who lives at the end of their cul-de-sac. The next night, he goes out to a bar, meets a college buddy who introduces him to this beautiful woman who's covered herself in tattoos. And, you know, these days, a full body suit is very common. But in the late 90s in North Carolina, it was a real curiosity, and he becomes obsessed with her. The next morning, he wakes up in the tattoo parlor with a half-finished butterfly on his chest, and this woman, Lucy, leaning over him, assuring everything's going to be okay. You haven't lost more than a gallon of blood. And, and the story picks up from there. So it follows Bill's obsession with Lucy. The scene I'm about to read, his wife has kicked Bill out of their McMansion. He's living out of a kind of low-rent motel called the Hornet's Nest. And he wanders through downtown Charlotte searching for this tattoo parlor where he woke up a week before in hopes that he might find Lucy there. Instead, he finds himself back in the chair for round two this time to get a long orange carrot on his forearm. That's my favorite part when he gets the carrot on his forearm. Oh, thank you. And you, before you start, you do a funny little thing on our book tour. Yeah, I I open with a little audience participation, Mm -hmm. a game I call Tattoo Coming Out Party, where I invite everybody in the audience to... And Steve's doing it now. He's taking off his shirt. Go for it. Okay, there you go. That's beautiful. Let's not get me kicked out of my Well, you know what? Steve has more tattoos than me, but I think mine's prettier. Um, (laughs) Anyway, uh, yeah, yeah. the, The audience sends me their tattoo vibes, and just through use pure tattoo magic... I can tell what kind of ink is in the room. Yeah, and some good ink in the room tonight. I, I know yeah, feeling I got, from I you too, Katie, so yeah. So anyway, in this scene, we begin with the tattoo artist, Niall, lecturing Bill about the history of tattoos. Thousands of years ago in early mystical cultures, Niall said, they all believed the same things. There are certain marks you don't make unless you're ready to move mountains. And with tattooing, you're breaking the skin. The skin is a protective barrier in every way. When you start cutting into the skin, you can do 10 times the magic work in half the time. Bill looked again at the blood spreading across his forearm. So what if the tattooist is just some greaseball named Porkchop, he asked. Who specializes in rebel flags and Harley-Davidson emblems, said Niall. 
it, it still has an effect? Of course it does. Even if the artist isn't actively engaging in a ritual at the time, it can still act on a metaphysical plane and alter someone's reality for good or bad. But, but with less predictability, usually the result is utter chaos. I'm very careful in my work, and even I have accidentally ruined lives, and sometimes not accidentally. Nile launched into a history lesson about ancient traditions of tattooing, and Bill lost track. His eye caught a familiar flash of color. Adam and Eve, standing beneath the tree. Damn, there she was, right there all along, tacked to the wall, the glossy color photo of her back. Proud flesh, pink and sore, ringed the fresh tattoo. That tree, its branches flared like a peacock spreading fan, bursting into flame. And what I failed to mention is that Lucy's most prominent tattoo is a portrait of the fall of man mm. on her back, Adam and Eve standing beneath the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Just seeing her skin even this simulacrum of her skin eased the hurt that gnawed away inside, replaced it with something sweet. What about Adam and Eve? Bill asked Nile, nodding toward the photo. For some reason, it was important to him that this tattoo be an original. Did you copy that from a painting? Nile followed his gaze, lifted his eyebrows, I do not copy paintings. Inspired by dozens of Renaissance figures, sure, okay. And not just Adam and Eve. But you won't find that image in any museum. Was it her idea or yours? They stared together at the photo. I like to believe it was a collaboration. Bill studied Adam's blue bodysuit and then scrutinized the blue scroll work running down Niles' arms up his neck. Similar, but not the same. That was a relief. Good to know Adam bore no great resemblance to his maker. No metal studs in those ancient ears. And Adam was large, heavy with muscle, earthy. Whose fault do you think it was? Bill asked. Come again? The fall, I mean. They say Eve got a bad rap. Well, according to Milton, my reading of Milton anyway, their disobedience was necessary. As a species, Nile digressed, we have forgotten how to have sex properly a long time ago. Bill began buttoning his cuff, hoping the tattoo wouldn't bleed and ruin this shirt. And without that knowledge, Nile said. We are extremely vulnerable as we approach the millennium, confronting beings of a far superior intelligence who are pursuing an information coup that will essentially degrade the human species to a state of bestiality. Bill felt confused. So, let me get this straight. Bill stood, waiting until the artist looked up from cleaning his equipment. I am not my body, 
but I've got to learn to use my body to be free. I've been focusing on this thing. He pulled up his shirt to stare at the butterfly on his chest. I've been failing so long, feeling caged in. My life's totally fucking falling apart if you want to know the truth, and I know you don't. But this butterfly thing here, it's been trying to tell me something if I will listen. And what I think it's saying is that I am not doomed. He stared across the room at Lucy's skin and at Adam and Eve wearing bodysuits of ink. I can act. I am, in fact, free. No, 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 no. Niall smirked and shook his head. It's not like that. It would be easier, wouldn't it? Freedom of the body? Freedom is an abstract human concept. He picked up his pack of American spirits and walked toward the door. It takes practice, discipline. His words came now like a chant. Bill focused on the voice that was lost in the glare of the sun. Self-control, the willingness to lose yourself. Most people are so distracted by their own materialism that they don't have time for sex. At least not the kind of spiritual sex I'm talking about. That shit will turn your world upside down if you do it enough and you don't close your eyes to the phenomena that start to happen in your life. Then the next thing you know, you will be a magician. Whether you want to be or not. Well, motorcycle and post. Motorcycle. I put that in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's not natural. I think it, I think it blended with the kind of the rise of the scene there. Yeah. The mm-hmm. rumbling of the Hell's Angels or the Outlaws, probably in this area. Can I ask a question? And was this protocol? Yeah, yeah. We don't have protocol. <laughs> Fucking protocol. The love the way you use Charlotte as a setting. Mm-hmm. I love the, the you have the A plot and there's a B plot of the mm-hmm. spirituality aspect mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. tattoo and the magic. Yeah. Tell me, did you do any research about the about the fucking part, the tantric sex part? I mean, how did you come to this? <laughs> God, you would ask that question. Well, hell yeah. Was, uh, I mean, did anybody not, that's was, what we <laughs> want to know, right? Oh, Inquiring no. minds want to know. Y- yes, I did. Okay, how so? What do you what do you do? You know, you actually I learned about this doing research. I mean, do you have to clear your sacral chakra and your and your solar plexus you chakra just so you can have move it all to, the way up? I mean, as what? as the artist says, you have to practice self control and oh, so you're keep talking the sting to, level of like no no orgasms. Exactly. Yeah. Got so it. according to Nile, it's many hours of sustained desire huh yeah yeah okay yeah well all right then (laughs) (laughs) we did cover that you have a tattoo now because i I found that out last we gotta do some more work on his tattoo yeah yeah i think it's a a starter set i think you need an orange carrot carrot yeah definitely uh, you need to color that in it's a starter tattoo well, it's, it's kind of interesting the kind that of, I, the, those I kids went, are getting like seventh grade. I these went days. for <laughs> Lucy's tattoo and not Bill's. I don't know what that says. You know, it's funny. Like speaking of tattoos, maybe I'm trying to channel my anima. I don't know. But when I was Did choosing anima, anima, not anima. Okay. Dad, come English professor. Anyway, when I was choosing, you know, my first tattoo, I kind of went back and forth between that. And a tattoo Bill gets later in the book was which is the Southern Cross, mm-hmm. and that's a not a constellation. I think the word is asterism. I don't know. I, I don't could know be. That. 
I might be. I can already tell I'm hanging out with anyway, professors. We're in, a, uh, we're in a group well, of I'm a, academics. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm an amateur astronomer, and I should know that term, but it's basically a, a group of stars, but it's not a constellation, whatever. You, you know, know what we call that? County, you know what we call that in Georgia? What? A group of stars. A group of stars. <laughs> <laughs> we, we well, the Southern Cross, you know, you know that yeah, David yeah, Crosby, yeah. that CSN. Yeah, song. Anyway, don't get me off on that. See, I was, I was going to go do that that tattoo and my wife says to me i've heard that that tattoo is some kind of confederate image and i thought what they can't have the fucking stars too you know but they don't no they don't but at the last minute i decided for the tree of flame instead of the southern cross the southern cross is in the book so bill gets that tattoo along the way Wow, I did not know yeah. that. So why, what, what was the impetus for writing this book? You didn't even have a tattoo before you got, right. you got the tattoo after the book. Well, I was working in Charlotte, playing in Charlotte in the 1990s. So uh, is, there, is there a real woman in, in this? Because so I'm just going to throw this in. The other <laughs> night we were at um, in Winston-Salem, and two of George's, clear, I th- I'm sure they were somewhat college Age, age friends, high school friends. High school, yeah. High school friends yeah, came right. in with some very pointed speculation about who <laughs> and Lucy they were wrong. Could I will be say. so. Yeah. Uh, yeah, she is a totally, totally out of the compost of my imagination. I mean, there is no model for her. Hmm. But back to Katie's question, which I'm almost about to forget, or your question about the impetus, the impetus of, the, of impetus. the book, the impetus. Uh, it's the time I, I lived in, or played and worked in Charlotte. I actually lived in rural Gaston County those years, and I commuted mm-hmm. to the city. So the kind of tension between the country and the city was played out in my everyday life, commuting to work. But there was a particular club I like to go to called the Double Door Inn. It's famous now. It closed about two years ago. Oh, weep some tears. But there was a band, a rockabilly band from my hometown called the Belmont Playboys. And it's the only time I've in my life ever been a hardcore groupie. Mm-hmm. In fact, you know, if I would just scan the entertainment news and if they weren't playing for, uh, you know, two or three weeks or a month, I would get depressed. I would feel like oh, you know, I'm missing something. I haven't seen the Belmont Playboy. So I went and saw these guys every chance I got, and I watched them one by one cover themselves in tattoos. And I I remember the concert where Mike Hendricks, the lead guitarist and singer, came on stage with a a tattoo on his neck, and that just knocked me out. Anyway, it was a, it was a time when tattoos really were a curiosity. Unlike today, not, you know, not many people had them other than veterans and criminals. Did, so and we can take it musicians. Bill Becker's wife is, current, is, is, is tattooless. Correct. Is that part of the connection he finds with Lucy, the fact that she has that? Yeah. A, it's Adam and Eve. You know, I mean, there's some significance in the tattoo and her... Well, there's something rebellious and uh, wild and a bit about her, but about yeah. tattoos in general. But there's also I something think. rebellious about his wife, right? Yeah, there is, because she's the first one to transgress the boundaries of their marriage. But it's a different kind of rebellion, I think. Yeah. Anyway, so it was a time in the 90s where I was trying to chronicle A, the boom years for Charlotte, and B, the 
birth of this new tattoo culture, the sort of the early days when people mm -hmm. became interested in tattoos and started getting them, when it started to enter the mainstream. Cool. Matthew, are you ready? Oh, I'm, sure. I want to hear from swapping purples for yellows. Sure. I'm going to read from the beginning. I just want to say this is a family drama, and about two pages after what I'm going to read, we find out in flashback that the protagonist's wife has told him the night before that she might be moving across the state of North Carolina, and they have an argument about that, and she smacks him in the face with a book. So he's waking up the morning after that here at the beginning. And this is freshly published. Freshly published. SFK last, Press. Last, okay. August 6th. August 6th. So last Tuesday. your favorite independent bookstore. That's right. Yeah. He'd done it again. He hadn't meant to. He never meant to. But when Rob Sutherland woke up the Friday morning of homecoming weekend, he was on the couch. He couldn't tell what hurt worse. His head, thanks to his wife or his back and shoulders from being compressed on their grad school leftover of a couch. He'd been waiting for his wife to reappear after their latest argument, only to find himself drifting off, and then he was in full-on sleep mode. The door to her study was finally open. He could hear the sound of her Ujjayi breathing. She was doing yoga. He knew that Ujjayi meant victorious, and he hated how apt that word must seem to her after the previous night. Though he would have declared it a stalemate, she always viewed herself as the decisive winner. He collected his wallet, keys, and satchel as quietly as he could and slipped out the kitchen door and into the carport. Unable to face Molly after their fight, nor his older daughter, Katie, who'd surely eavesdropped on most of their argument, he would only miss seeing Robin, who still slept the peaceful slumber of pre-adolescence. She would be the lone member of the family to awaken refreshed and ready to take on the day. It was cool outside, still dark, and as he started the car, he thought about the other reason the day was important. It wasn't just the start of homecoming weekend when the past came back to haunt the present in the flesh. It was also Halloween, when Robin would join the other young ghouls in haunting their shabby and otherwise sedate neighborhood. She looked forward to the holiday the way she used to prepare for Christmas, beginning a list for Santa as early as August. Now she had Katie sketch mock-ups of various outfits for weeks before settling on the most appropriate one, which she refused to unveil until the night of the festivities. He figured the finishing touches had been what had kept Katie up the night before. Though only 17, she was already a better seamstress than her grandmother, but even the hum of her electric machine wouldn't have covered her parents' dramatics downstairs. Crider Hall, home of the English department, sat on the outskirts of campus, adjacent to the town cemetery. Most of the time, when he looked out the window, he took pleasure in the way the sun glinted off the rows of uneven tombstones across the street. It seemed fitting that 300 years of history should lie so close to a college campus that he could leave his office and find himself surrounded by veterans of every war this country had ever fought. He hadn't taken such a stroll in years, not since Robin was learning to walk, but just the possibility usually buoyed him. Not that morning. When his eyes alighted on the 12-foot-tall obelisk at the center of one family plot, 
he was reminded of Shelley, a poet he didn't even like. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Like Ozymandias, that family had died out long ago, leaving a ridiculous monument and a small-town graveyard as its legacy. He heard a knock at the door, followed by the voice of his friend, Professor Herman Delacroix. So you're a closet romantic, after all. I'm sorry. You were talking to yourself. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sand, something, something, something. In typical Delacroix fashion, he had on a three-piece suit, even on a Friday, and he smoothed the pinstriped vest as he eased himself into the chair opposite Rob. He tapped the desk with the school paper, rolled into a baton, a question clear from his wrinkled forehead. Too busy grading. Delacroix cocked his head in the direction of the window. As with all of his movements, this one was precise, almost fussy. Someone less perspicacious might suggest the amount of time you spend brooding over that cemetery bears some connection to your increasingly gloomy disposition. Contemplating, not brooding, then contemplate this for a moment. Rob took the daily crier from him and looked at the front page. Headlines announcing the crowning of the homecoming court and the afternoon pep rally filled his vision. A banner at the top of the page welcomed alums back to campus in a gigantic font. Beneath the fold, Herman said. Famous alum to announce major gift Saturday, he read aloud. Contrary to conventional wisdom, my money's on a video game arcade. Rows of Evro games pinging and bathing the campus in an electric glow so bright it'll be visible from space. You're showing your age, Herman. Even my daughters have games on their phone. My mistake. Herman frowned at the essay before Rob, turned it around on the desk so that he could read the opening. Future freshmen won't know what they're missing. Excuse me? When you rise to the ranks of the well-endowed, professorially speaking, that's a rumor, Herman. Robert Sutherland, Evan Wyckoff Endowed Chair of English Literature, his friend mused. Rob had considered bringing it up the previous night, after Molly dropped her bomb in his lap. But if it were truly happening, he would, wouldn't he have heard something by now? Wyckoff's gift was presumed to be large enough that the president was handling it himself. And though Rob passed him at least once a week in the faculty dining hall... Dr. Vesey had yet to tip his hand. I hope it comes with a nicer office, Herman said. This place is a dump. This whole building is a dump. If Evan wants to make a meaningful contribution, he should donate a new one. A bit grand, don't you think? That's what people probably thought before the Criders plunked down their grocery store money to build this place. A year earlier, Evan Wyckoff, Confluence College 04, had given the keynote address at TED. Wyckoff's business with his friend Ross Howard, Evro Productions, had vaulted onto the video game design map five years earlier, cornered the market on quasi-educational, historical reenactment-style games, and had already begun creating their own TV and movie tie-ins. In his TED Talk, Wyckoff had decided to focus on the setbacks that had ultimately led to his success particularly on one that had occurred all the way back in college. He mentioned Rob by name, describing a course he'd taken with him and its disappointing result. In a way, he said, I have Dr. Sutherland to thank for where I am now. 
Without that C, I might have gotten into Yale's graduate program like I'd planned and ended up becoming yet another tenure-obsessed English professor. Instead, so the story went among Rob's colleagues, the C in history of the novel forced Evan to settle for a fallback school, which he left without even an M.A. once he and Ross designed their first and most popular game, The Service. While Evan had been a good student, he was unexceptional compared to the scores of other would-be Shakespeareans graduating every year. Nevertheless, the mythology around him had grown, as had Rob's role as the villain when the young man dropped out of that fallback school to found Evro Productions. As the service, which he'd helped design instead of focusing on his MA program, became more popular and garnered more awards, Rob's colleagues began referring to him as our Evan Wyckoff, the possessive demarcating the line between those who had supported him and those like Rob who had failed to see the greatness residing just beneath the surface. The Ted speech changed all of that. As Herman had told him, he'd suddenly taken the lead in the Evan Wyckoff Best Prof Ever contest. To Rob, such a victory, if one could even call it that, was no more welcome than the pop-up ads that appeared when he surfed the web. Congratulations, you're the winner of the Evan Wyckoff sweepstakes. Click here to claim your prize. Ooh, snaps yeah. all around. That's awesome. Awesome. Thank, Thank you, you for sharing. I, I, I realized something as, as Matthew was reading that based upon what George was talking about, that idea mm-hmm. of the transgressive, right? Mm-hmm. And the whole family. Yeah. Everybody mm-hmm. in that family is is, a, is kind of yeah, they're all, saying, power of the people, fuck the man. Exactly. They're all trying to, to figure out where they fit. Mm-hmm. Rob, the husband, has been too comfortable where he is, and as things change over the course of the weekend, he realizes that. Molly, his wife, of course, is looking for a big change, moving maybe across the state. Uh, he has two daughters, Katie and Robin, who are both kind of in that adolescent phase of asserting their identities, kind of figuring out yeah, but Katie who makes they're a, going to be. Katie makes a bold yes. play for her identity. Mm-hmm. Yes, Katie does. And I'd say by the end, Robin... Can Robin's we give a spoiler d- alert? Spoiler? Yeah. yeah. Well, I I'm, think she's grappling with it the entire book, her sexuality. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Her sexuality yeah. is the big thing. I work yeah. both. I w- yeah. Notice I work both conversations back around sex, yeah. but that's, you can cut that part out. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll keep it in. Yeah. It's the juicy bit. Yeah. <laughs> but even Robin, who makes a public display of her independence mm-hmm. as, yeah. as a piano prodigy, perhaps, I'd, I'd say she does it more with a costume, though. And yeah, <laughs> the costume is transgressive. <laughs> the costume right? is, is transgressive too. Yeah, as she dresses as Jackie Kennedy right after the assassination. So she's got the blood and the bone chips and all of that nasty stuff. You talked a little bit last night at mm-hmm. Sunrise Books about writing about academia and how people told you that unless it was satire, yeah. it wouldn't be picked up. Can right. you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Typically, when people find out that this novel is partially set on a college campus, immediately it's it's a campus novel. Mm-hmm. You know, no matter Richard what's Russo, going on. Don Richard DeLillo. Russo, Don DeLillo, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And someone did, in fact, say this is like a realistic version of Straight Man, the Richard Russo novel from, I think, the 90s. For me, it's just, it's where they work. It, it's, it's just their career happens to be in academia, but what's really important is that, that family core in the novel. Absolutely. But as a result of this idea, this concept that people have that, oh, it must be a campus novel, I've discovered that if it's not satirical, 
and over the top, then it's not mm-hmm. what those in the know claim is marketable mm-hmm. necessarily. It, it may not be over go, the top, it, but it's for me, close. there's it, this yeah. humor that just mm-hmm. verbals yeah, in yeah. every sentence. The Southerns are funny as hell. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Thank and I, you. I said last night mm-hmm. that I, don't, I never, while reading it, felt that it was a book about, like, the academia part mm-hmm. was second secondary right. to everything else. To mm-hmm. me, it's a familial story of or a story of familial discontent yeah. and this idea of failure and not accomplishing your dreams and mm-hmm. what that means and coming to terms with yourself. Can you talk a little bit about where the story came from? Sure. Or, yeah. My wife and I were walking around one day. This was in about 2010 and the census was going on and there was a guy sitting in his car on the side of the road and at the time I hadn't connected why he was sitting there. It's just a young guy about 22, 23 and all of a sudden I had this image of this character sitting in a car, this graduate student who turns out to be Evan Wyckoff in the novel, having this this existential moment, this dark night of the soul, and he's thinking about going in and talking to one of his old professors to get advice. And it starts there with just that image, and I built this novel around it, and it turns out the professor became more important to me than the guy sitting on the street. Mm-hmm. But over time, it kind of built, and then my daughter was born a year later, I stayed home with her and my wife said, you're gonna go crazy if all you do all day is talk to a baby. So she graciously arranged for a babysitter to come in about three hours a day, three days a week. And I realized I've gotta do something with this time that's gonna be significant. And all of a sudden I was a little more ambitious than I'd been before. Mm -hmm. And so I took that image and built the novel around it. Well, this tour, on this tour, so we've been, you know, we always start the, each event with you guys reading or I read Brian's book the other night you see you read your book the first night we're kind of like trading off each night changing it up and then we move into more publishing talk so I do Mm -hmm. like in our last bit of this episode want to talk a little bit about the publishing side that we've been moving towards and like what you know how that affects the literary community because we've been talking a lot about like what indie presses do for literature and what independent bookstores do for writers and can you guys talk a little bit about how you found Southern Fried Karma and what it means to you publishing in a fiercely independent press? Uh, and I'm, I'm watching and listening. <laughs> <laughs> no shit. pressure here, Keep right? Yeah. I gave them no time yeah. for talking points right. before. Yeah. So, <laughs> Well, I can say because of this advice I got about it being too niche, mm-hmm. I went for contests and indie press contests, sent it out everywhere I could think of. And then I found out about Southern Fried Karma. I'd met Steve at the Hollands University Tinker Mountain Writers Workshop one summer, but long before SFK came along just as writers. And I knew enough from that week that if someone was going to make a new press work, it was going to be him. And so I submitted it to their novel contest as well, which was no fee, which was completely different from everybody else. And I was a finalist there. Steve kindly sent me pages of notes that an editor had developed and said, you know, you can take these, don't take them, don't even send it back to us if you don't want to. But I worked on it for another nine months or so, sent it back to them, and they liked the changes. I know a lot of small presses who do that work. I mean, we we definitely do. Brian spends a lot of time with submissions, and he gives detailed feedback mm-hmm. for the most part. Yeah, on, it's amazing. On, you know, how, how radically did the book change, Steve? 
Well, we changed the, the title like 20 <laughs> About, fucking yeah. times. Yeah. Why, yeah. Where did swapping purples for yellows come from? I know. I know yeah. where it came from. It, you want me to? Okay. Well, I mean, where it came, I know right. where the I when, when the title was suggested. Yes. And I know who suggested right. it. Who suggested it? Christina Byers, author yeah. of Not All Migrate. What, and what? Another SFK title. Yeah, SFK, mm-hmm. uh, June 2019. We were at AWP. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying Chris was hung over a little bit, but you know, it's AWP, right? Yeah. yeah. And it's Portland is a, you know, Oregon's a wreck state. So yeah. anyway, anyway, no way it was tense. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's and when we, we've yeah. been on the fourth iteration of the title. Right. Exactly. We had been batting around ideas as much as we could at AWP. I happened to read a scene at the Bitches and Bells debutante ball that SFK threw. And Christina grabbed me as I left the microphone. She's like, there's your title. It's right there. And the rest is history. Wow, go Christina. Yeah. Not all migrate. Yeah. Southern Fire Karma mm-hmm. Press. Get yeah. her book, too. Talk about transgressive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. How about you, George? Well, a friend of mine, April Ford, had started working for SFK. Shout out to a, April Ford. Yeah. Ford. She's yeah. in Canada, April, eh? Uh, as an associate publisher. Sure. And sure, she eh? solicited a manuscript. I was working on a, a different novel at the time, but I so I looked at SFK and how their identity was wrapped up in edgy transgressive fiction with a southern flavor mm-hmm. and I thought I've got just the story for you. You know, this book was at the time moldering in a drawer i hadn't looked at it in a few years i had had an agent previously who hadn't been able to sell it and when i pulled it out again and read it i thought oh now i understand why she couldn't sell it because it's bad yeah but i still loved these characters you know and i i thought their story was important so i set about rewriting the book from the first word to the last and it was kind of a breakneck nine months to get the revised or the rewritten draft to Steve. And then they gave me a contract and then to work with Pinkney Benedict as developmental editor who gave me wonderful feedback. And as I've said before, every night I would read one of Pinkney's stories. And then in the morning I would say, well, anybody who writes like that, I'm going to do whatever the hell he mm-hmm. asks me to do and it helped me tremendously and then stylistic editor Kate Lebron did a great job there and and throughout the whole process of editing the book you know SFK just helped me so much to make the book the best book it can be mm-hmm. and so my experience with the independent press is this commitment of the editors and of mm-hmm. Steve to just help me achieve my artistic vision and I think it's important for the writer to listen but I never felt I was forced to do anything I didn't want to do okay here's a challenging question and I know your publisher is going to sitting right here (laughs) but Steve no no threatful looks at them oh boy it's a challenging question but I think like all in fiercely independent press whatever you call yourself we have to be responsible and self-aware and reflect on our practice and what we're doing yep and so my question is, what challenges are there in dealing with a small press and being an author, like pushing your book out? What were some challenges that came up? I got to go to the men's room. Matthew? No, I would say it's the same challenge that you face just being a debut 
writer, which is mm-hmm. figuring out what do you do when the book's coming out for publicity. Yeah, but it's but it's, pu- it's double size it. How yeah. do you market because it? Because they don't know us and they don't know you. Right, exactly, yeah. and and that's one reason why we're on the tour. Right, exactly, and so you have to be more creative. You can't just sit back and say, "Oh, well, my publisher's going to put a." ad in the New York Times book review or something like that and it's just going to roll in so you have to be more proactive I think even with the big five yeah they're still I mean like we you know I'm not going to go into your whole moon pie thing but the big five are putting a lot of resources into like one writer and the rest of the writers they publish you know each month or whatever they're not putting all that in so they also have to take ownership I mean yeah that's just part of being a writer this day and age your book's just Mm -hmm. not going to like go instantly number one bestseller New York Times Amazon whatever you got to really work and push for that which is why we're all here too I mean we're we are trying to advocate for indie presses and bookstores and build literary community but we also have three books you know both of your books and Brian's book that we're Emerald City Emerald City September 15th it's now available for pre-order the book book is it's it's pretty cool shout out to Olivia Croom and Sean Feria for their work on the cover and, and interior and you can pre-order it today. I like it when you call him a prolific writer, mm-hmm. and then you read his pieces, and I go, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he rewrote that book six times. It is mm-hmm. no, it's that good, is not wonderful. a lie. And like when I say rewrote, I mean like I have never seen a writer. So that book is like 400 pages. Easily, I'm sure it was several thousand that he's cut down over the mm-hmm. years, re- between rewriting and everything. Anyway, George. You're so, not getting out of my question. No, 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 yeah. no. For me, the challenge, and it's been a fun challenge to me, has been you know, what Matthew said, to learn how to promote mm-hmm. the book. And I'm a bit of a technophobe. I wasn't on social media at all until mm-hmm. about a month before my pub day. Oof. I know, because I was making those book trailer videos and all that and revising the book and taking serious trying to get the book right and then it was time to promote so you know it's been kind of a breakneck pace of learning how to be on social media and that's been exciting for me though and I've had a lot of help from SFK in doing that. Mm-hmm. The PR department's constantly generating buzz, generating stuff online. And you know, it's funny, when, when I used to Google myself, <laughs> and I wouldn't find anything, or except maybe some scholarly articles. Now, if I Google myself, there's a lot of stuff there. So my platform is building partly as a result of my own efforts but actually from SFK so it's this kind of collaboration between writer and press big motorcycle that I don't know I feel like it's working and then to have the chance to do the tour this week has been really wonderful and that just kind of elevates all of our efforts so it all kind of works together Mm -hmm. and it's it's been really it's been really exciting for me. George, you're, you're, you're both very gracious, but, but I think George handed around one, one of the things as a, as, a, as a fiercely independent publisher that we're aware of, and that's geography mm-hmm. and our, our ability to have an impact and create that community. It's tough as, as so I'm, I'm really speaking to kind of the authors or look, considering independent publishers or mm-hmm. small presses, whatever y'all want to call yourself, is, is realize that it is, it's hard to get that nationwide impact mm-hmm. i mean even even where the crawl babies sing 
Where the Crawdads Sing? Yeah. yeah, that song, that one too. Yeah. It's not that a song, song, it's a book. <laughs> it, I know the book. Sold a lot of copies of it. You know, that's, that story's kind of broken out of the regionalism. But, and that's, right. but that's an issue that, that we know that we face this as a... And, but George has been very gracious with his time and coming on the tour. You're taking a, what do y'all call that in the academic world? We call it vacation. We call, in Bulldogs, <laughs> we call it vacation. Yeah, that's what everybody else calls it. I call it a sabbatical. Damn. <laughs> this episode's dropping on August 15th. So do you guys have any events coming up that you want to shout out or anything that, where can people find your work? But after August 15th. Yeah. So if you're in Charlotte on September 25th, come out to Park Road Books. If you're in the upstate area, come out to Kano or Hartwick College or several libraries in the area, Casanova, Cooperstown. I'll be reading at... Is that stuff on your author page? That is all on my author page. So go to, go to www georgehovis.net how, how many w's did you have in there <laughs> www.georgehovis.net georgehovis.net i do not have a sabbatical so i am getting ready to start in school mode but i will have a story in the new southern fugitives amen congratulations the end of august how are the people fucked the man that's right and other work can be found at matthewduffus.com and Steve, what's the next book coming out for Southern Fred Karma? We have Appalachian Book of the Dead coming out right after. Ooh, that's uh, a book yeah. with yeah. my kind of title. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a great, great story. Title. When's it coming out? September the 5th is great. the date that book is coming out. He said, guessing. <laughs> and you can buy both George and Matthew's books at southernfriedkarma.com. You can go to sfkpress.com. I don't know why you're a .net. Anyway, George, we'll talk about that later. Um, .com was taken by the actor, George Hovis. Okay. Uh, anyway, yeah, or you can go to your, your local independent bookstore and order a copy. We know that they have copies at, at the Sunrise Books in High Point and that's as, right. as well as uh, and Scuppernon. Yeah. 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 And Quail Ridge Books in Raleigh. In Quail Ridge Books in Raleigh, yes. And then we'll be and August... Green, Green Toad in Oneonta. At August 19th, we'll be at Page and Pairings at M. Judson Bookstore in downtown Greenville, South Carolina. Great. Where the book buyers are good friend Ashley Warlick. Well, thank you guys so much for being on and joining me today and also for being on this book tour. It's been really fun. We're halfway yeah, through. Been fun. Yeah. we got our fourth one tonight. We're going to go power the people, fuck the man, firestorm books. Here we come. All right, that's right. Thank you, Katie. Thank yeah. you. You're awesome. I was, that, I'm wearing a special outfit for tonight. I'll tell you all later. He's wearing all <laughs> okay. red, and that's what he's been wearing all week. Okay, that's it for today's episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review on whichever platform you're listening. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Animal Riot Press or at our website, AnimalRiotPress.com. This has been the 30th episode of the Animal Riot Podcast with me, Katie Rainey, your stand-in host for Brian Birnbaum. Thanks to our special guests from Southern Fried Karma, Steve McCondishy, George Hovis, and Matthew Duffus. Our transcripts for our deaf and hard of hearing animals are provided by Jonathan Kay. This episode was cut by our podcast assistant, Dylan Thomas, and we are produced by me, Katie Rainey. See you later, you filthy animals. It's the burn, bombing on yelling, getting gully as the burn. How 
don't know much about Lee.